Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 92, The Fall of Lancaster. Very soon we'll go back to Leeds Castle then and find out the answer to last week's question, did Isabella and Margaret take a calm and practical approach and sort this matter out or did they take the route to war? but I hope it's okay if you wait a little longer while I start with two digressions this week. Firstly, the strange practice of touching for the king's evil. And secondly, the declaration of our broth, without which no history of England and Scotland can be complete. So, in many conflicts since 1066, we've seen that raising rebellion against the king was a rather different matter to having a scrap with another local baron because there was something different about the king, above and beyond the feudal tie between Lord and his liegeman. The king had a mystical, religious authority that continued to cling to him, anointed by God in the form of the Pope and the Church. And uniquely in England and France, one of the manifestations of the touch of divinity is an odd little habit called touching for the king's evil. The king's evil we're talking about here is a nasty-looking skin complaint called scrofula. Scrofula involves nasty swellings and blue-purple growths on the neck, and was pretty common in times medieval. The idea was that English and French kings had the power to cure the disease, just by touching it. This idea first appears in the mid-11th century in both England and France. So the first king recorded as having power in England was Edward the Confessor, who healed a woman with swollen throat glands. It could be that the origin of the tradition is not in fact religious, but secular, i.e. a kind of magical, mystical power 
associated with kingship. So you might remember a chronicler called William of Malmesbury that we used to constantly refer to. In the 1120s, he takes a swipe at those who claimed that, quote, power to cure this disease doesn't stem from sanctity, but hereditarily from royal stock. So there's clearly something of an argument going on. But if there was an older, secular tradition, by the 1180s, the church had done what they did with so many other traditions and customs, i.e. stole them, and claimed them for their own, for the greater glory of God. So here's Peter of Blois, the guy who wrote those rather depressed accounts of being trapped in the hothouse of the king's court under Henry II. The Lord King is holy, and the Lord's anointed, and he did not receive the sacrament of royal unction in vain. If anyone does not know or doubts its power, then it can be fully demonstrated by the diminution of groin disease and the cure of scrofula. Now, the power of many kings, such as Henry I, in the groin area, is well known. But as far as scrofula is concerned, of course we don't have any statistics about what the recovery rates were. But we do know that Edward I, II and III all believed it was part of their royal dignity. As ever, the French took the royal dignity thing to extremes. So there was one king, for example, who had scrofula hoolies with up to 1,500 people at the same time. The prayer book in England even had a formal ceremony associated with touching for scrofula, and sufferers who were lucky enough to be so touched would get themselves a coin called an angel as part of the treatment. In England, Charles I took it all very seriously, as you would expect. But it was actually Queen Anne who was the last person to do it, and the Hanoverians in the early 18th century dismissed the whole thing as complete piffle and the French actually did the same around the same time. Though amusingly, Charles X of France, who was a remarkably and potterly ultra-conservative monarch in the Restoration in France after the Revolution, he tried to bring it back, but the whole thing was received with predictable derision in an age after the Enlightenment. OK, so that was just hopefully an at least mildly interesting diversion, the point of which was to show that when you took up arms against the king, you also took up arms against God's anointed. There would be many who would simply not join you come hell or high water, however just your cause. My second diversion comes from 1320 in Scotland. Since 1307, things have steadily but constantly changed. By 1320, we have a king in Scotland again, and one taking the fight to the English recapturing Berwick in 1318, besieging Carlisle a number of times and raping and pillaging his way over the north of England. But in 1320, Robert Bruce still faced challenges to his legitimacy from the Pope. First of all, he was still an excommunicate for his murder of John Comyn, and in the eyes of the Pope, who had recognised Edward I's right, he was still a usurper. Plus, he had another problem, which was that the Scots had in fact chosen John Balliol as king, and John Balliol was still alive. So how could they justify the fact that now they're saying that Robert is king instead of John? The declaration of our broth was part of Bruce's propaganda campaign to re-establish his right and close down the war with England. 
Now, you can imagine Bruce and his pals sitting in some drafty hall somewhere as the Scottish rain whistled through the windows, trying to work out how they would square this particular circle. The answers they came up with made for some very modern interpretations for later reformers to call on. Because what they did was argue that Robert is the people's choice, that the Scottish people essentially have the right to choose their own king, and if the king's rubbish, they can choose another one. So, at a stroke, this removes all the objections. They can get rid of Edward because they can choose their own king, thank you very much. And they can get rid of John Balliol because they can choose their own king, thank you very much. In particular because in his case, he couldn't defend them from Edward, and so was as useful as a chocolate teapot. The motivation for these declarations were in all likelihood nothing to do with a passion for the constitution and the love of the common man. But of course, in future years, the Scots would have the declaration as justification and rallying cry for the power of the people. But the most famous thing, of course, about the declaration are the rather stirring words about her independence from the Sassanac yoke. So you need to prepare yourself by popping on your kilt, painting a blue and white saltire on your face, and waving a flag with the red line of Scotland, and then recite after me. For as long as but a hundred of us remain alive, never will we on any conditions be brought under the English rule. It is in truth not for glory, nor riches, nor honours that we are fighting, but for freedom, for that alone which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. So there you go, the precursor to the Scottish conquest of England in 1603. I've put the full text, should you be interested, on the website. As a rather more specific link to this week's episode, Bruce has now got to the point where he feels strong enough to start pushing for a peace treaty with the English, a sign of how far he's come since the dark days. OK, so having dealt with my two diversions, let's get back to the main event. The answer to what happened next is that Battlesmere's wife, Margaret de Clare, told Queen Isabella to push off as her husband had told her to. Isabella was, of course, livid. No one told her to push off and got away with it, so she haughtily ordered her entourage to force an entry. Now, her entourage must have looked at her as though she was completely mad, since all they had to attack with was a few swords and possibly a toothpick or two. But to give them their due, they manfully went up and gave the walls a jolly good beating. When nine of them had been killed in this pastime, the Queen finally called them off. No, no, they must have said, why stop now just when we're hating it? Of course, in fact what their noble, if slightly pointless, deaths achieved was a causeless belly for their king, a reason to attack a subject that was now in rebellion. Over at Whitney, the rebel lords, and indeed Battlesmere himself, were pretending to beat seven bells out of each other at a tournament, so that in fact they could plot and scheme. The Contrarians, as they were to be called, had a choice to make now. If they defended Battlesmere, they effectively made this war one of rebellion against the king, rather than an argument with the younger dispenser. If they didn't defend Battlesmere, they effectively allow themselves to be defeated piecemeal. 
the leaders of the rebellions were marcher lords, Roger Mortimer and Humphrey Bohoon, the Earl of Hereford, and they decided that they should stand together rather than fall one by one, and they set off with their men for Kent. But at this point, two things happened. First of all, Lancaster displayed all his shortcomings. He hated Battlesmere. We're not quite sure why, but the two had been arguing for years, and so he withdrew his support and told Hereford and Mortimer not to go and help Battlesmere on any circumstance. At the same time, Pembroke and the Archbishop of Canterbury were also urging them to stop and talk. Oh dear, Mortimer and Hereford were in a terrible pother of indecision. And like a confused android, they stopped marching towards Battlesmere and stopped and dithered. By this time, the younger dispenser was clearly back in the country and advising the king. By this time, the younger dispenser was clearly secretly back in the country and advising the king. Edward advanced on Leeds, and the garrison knew that they could expect no help, and so they surrendered. The normal rules said that if you surrendered, you might be fined and so on, but basically, you'd be okay and be spared. But Edward was having none of that, and the commander and twelve others were executed. It was brutal, but round one had gone to Edward. By the end of December, the dispensers were officially invited back, and their exiles were quashed. The focus of the war now moved to the west and to the marches of Wales. Hereford and Mortimer followed the tactics that we've been through many times before. They moved to control the river crossings across the River Severn. But as Edward approached, they heard of a Welsh lord, Griffith Fluid, who had taken up arms for the king behind them in Wales and had taken the castles of Clun, Chirk and Holt. And meanwhile, like a numpty, Lancaster was still spitting nails about Battlesmere, rather than recognising that if he didn't do something now, he'd be on his own and he'd be in the poo. Feeling trapped, Mortimer broke ranks and asked the king for terms. Edward was now having a great time. His blood was up, it was all going his way, and he'd have his plound of flesh. Plus, possibly a few entrails, and so he demanded nothing but complete surrender. Given the way people were treated by Edward, it was no surprise that Mortimer was understandably reluctant. He had no desire to go the way of Llewellyn Bren. And at this point, it was a little white lie that helped move things along. Pembroke gave him assurances on his own authority that if he came in, Mortimer would be pardoned, he wouldn't be killed or imprisoned, it'd all be fine. And so Mortimer came in. And so Edward clapped him in irons and sent him to the tower. Pembroke essentially has a rather poor record about delivering on personal assurances. So hearing this, Hereford changed his diary rubbed out the appointment with the king that he'd pencilled in, and instead he went north to join Lancaster and his army. Hot on his heels was the king. He'd heard from the Sheriff of Cumberland, one Andrew Harclay, that the Scots were raiding, and Edward was afraid that they were going to join Lancaster. Harclay, meanwhile, raised a force of 1,000 hobbilars, i.e. mounted men-at-arms, and headed north things were now looking increasingly worrying for Lancaster. Although he was besieging a royal castle at the time, his allies were dropping like flies, 
and to add to his pain, treasonable letters between him and the Scots had come to light. Lancaster was referred to in the letters as King Arthur. As Edward had these letters read out on the pulpits, any kind of public survey would have found Lancaster's approval rating at record lows. Lancaster's authority was melting in front of his eyes. Although he called out levies, very few turned up. In panic at the king's approach, Lancaster looked for the council of his household. All agreed that he had two options. He could retreat to Northumberland and his great castle at Dunstanborough, or he could throw himself on the mercy of the king. It seems pretty clear that Lancaster really couldn't quite grasp the full extent of his situation at this point. He still seemed to believe that everything was as it was, that he was king in the north, as cousin to the king, surely he'd be okay, ignoring the ample evidence of Edward's brutality. Eventually, only a naked blade waved in his face by Lord Clifford, one of his household, convinced him that he must flee to the far north. And so off they set. But they got no further than Borough Bridge, where they found Harclay in their way, holding the bridge against them with those hobbilars and his levies. So Lancaster and Hereford were trapped between Harclay and the king, unless they could force the bridge and a ford that was slightly downriver. And so a plan was formed. Hereford and Clifford were to attack the bridge. Lancaster was to attack the ford. Facing them, Harclay had arranged his men in a skiltrum formation with their pikes, supported by archers. At the bridge, the pick of household knights and Hereford, described as a worthy knight of renown throughout Christendom, advanced on the enemy. As Hereford laid about him with his noble sword, the chronicler described what happened next. A worthless creature skulked under the bridge and fiercely with a spear smote the noble knight into the fundament so that his bowels came out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There. 
As Hereford's embarrassed screams of death and agony filled the air, Lancaster was equally struggling against the pikemen at the ford, and so he called for a truce overnight. Overnight, the majority of his men had a good look at the odds and their career prospects, and decided that they weren't good. So they quietly put aside their expensive armour, found the grubbiest clothes they could find, and took to the highways and byways of England, leaving their lord to his fate. So when Lancaster got up in the morning, he found things strangely quiet, and realised that he was to be the toast. Harkley's men found him kneeling in a nearby chapel, took everything of value from him, and led him to Pontefract, where the king was. His interview with the king didn't go as he might have hoped. He was met by the younger dispenser and the king. Edward, quote, contemptuously insulted him to his face with malicious and arrogant words. This was not a good sign. The night of the 21st of March, 1322, would not have been an easy night for Lancaster. The following day, he was brought before the king, the dispensers, and the earls of Pembroke, Kent, Richmond, Surrey, Athol, and Angus. In a process that would become worryingly familiar, a long indictment was read out of all his crimes, and he was not allowed to speak in his defence. The approach was that his crimes were notorious, i.e. they were so blessed obvious that they didn't need any further evidence because everybody knew what was going on. This is hardly due process of law. He was declared guilty of treason and sentenced to be hung and drawn and quartered, but at the last minute, in deference to his royal blood, the sentence was remitted to just having his head cut off. He was mounted on an old nag, and an old hat, tattered and torn, pushed onto his head. He was led out through a crowd who jeered and threw snowballs at his head, and then, with two or three blows, his head was off. Edward II's reign was such a failure not because of any great principle or historical trend, but simply because a weak, incompetent king couldn't control the way his country was governed. I think I'm right in saying that Edward himself, funnily enough, was never accused of tyranny, but his out-of-control chums were, and through his weakness many vicious things were done. Some historians have tried to see in this reign a principled struggle against royal authority, and obviously part of that story are the ordinances. The argument was also bolstered by the attempt of the ordainers to make the royal household and royal government separate, by limiting the financial power of the king's wardrobe and making the exchequer the only way of spending and controlling government spending. But the way I see it, the reign isn't really about big themes. As we've seen so far, many of the barons were no better than the king. Somehow we've ended up in a reign where the maintenance of law and order is wafer thin. And although we focus on great men and all that, corruption, misuse of power and violence ran through all sections of society. Crime seems to have risen, particularly under pressure of the Great Famine, of course. The officials of state were constantly being changed as regime changed, resulting in a lack of stability and continuity. The post of royal treasurer, for example, changed 14 times. There are loads of examples of men gaining power through violence. We've seen how this comes from the very top, through the dispensers and Lancaster, but it went much deeper than that. 
I'll give you just one example of Robert Lewer. He starts as a simple constable of archers, and although not of knightly rank, was given Odium Castle in 1311 with a force of 21 squires. His behaviour was so bad that he was singled out for expulsion by the ordainers, but stayed right where he was. Then he got his hands on a manor by a legal fiction, depriving its owner, Isabella Bardolph. In 1320, he fell out of favour with the dispensers and was arrested for violence, which of course endeared him to the dispensers, who then brought him back into the fold. After Boroughbridge, he carried on his campaign of violence against the dispensers and was brought to trial. He refused to speak and therefore died by pen fort et dur, i.e. he was slowly crushed to death by weights. We'll come back to pen fort et dur at some point in the future, by the way, but the point here that I'm trying to make was that it was becoming really difficult to tell the heroes from the villains to separate royal official from thieves. Some commentators have pointed out that the change in feudal structures might have had some responsibility for this. The process of indenture we've talked about before, with men paid for their service rather than tied to land, may have made it easier to break and change those feudal ties. Lancaster was notably poorly served by his retainers, for example, who all took to the road rather than stand by him. And maybe that's true. But Edward's weakness will soon be fully exposed again by the dispenser regime. First off, though, was the bloodbath after Borough Bridge. Lancaster was just the start. You need to contrast what happens now with the outcomes of earlier revolts. So remember good old Henry II? Ah, happy days. Well, in the barons' revolt against him, in 1173 and 4, the barons were given a jolly good talking to, slapped firmly on the wrists and fined, before returning to their estates. In 1264, admittedly, after Evesham, it was a lot harder. The de Montforts were hunted down, and it took some pain and personal effort for Henry and Edward to behave like reasonable human beings. But in the end, they did. Edward II was much harder. On the same day that Lancaster, gagged and voiceless, lost his head, six other barons were hanged in chains in York. Justices were appointed to deal with ten others throughout the country. For example, Bartholomew of Battlesmere was taken back to his native Kent and given the full treatment. Dragged to the streets of Canterbury, hanged, beheaded, head on a spike, you know the drill. There were body parts distributed all over the country in a profusion of special packages of biological material. These bits of rotting human flesh hung round the entrance to towns until 1324, when they were finally allowed to be buried. All of this raised the stakes. If you rebelled now against the king, you'd better win, and you'd better put your man down permanently and completely. Meanwhile, the population of the tower was growing. Although Mortimer was condemned to die in Westminster Hall in August, Edward commuted it to life imprisonment. Wives, widows and families were consigned to castles and convents across the country, and about 117 men suffered permanent loss of their possessions. There was, true to say, some moderation to this. In July 1322, Edward did institute a procedure whereby some rebels could regain their lands through payment of a fine, and 158 men did this. 
But again, it's all a bit arbitrary and in a way did more to contribute to the air of insecurity and fear. And now Edward and the dispensers were having some fun. Now that they'd butchered all the boys who had tormented them and made them collect all the pencils at the end of class, they could get rid of all those silly school rules that made everything such a bore. So Edward called a parliament at York and had the ordinances quashed on the basis that they were detrimental to royal power. Then he had the chance to build a broad power base by parcelling out the most absolutely enormous windfall of land any king could wish for, a patronage bonanza. And he started off OK, with some grants to Pembroke, Arundel on Surrey, and rewarding Harclay, the victor of Boroughbridge, by making him Earl of Carlisle. But then he lost the plot, and simply gave massive grants to the dispensers. The elder was made Earl of Winchester, the younger given vast possessions in the Welsh marches, amongst others. Excellent, well done Edward. So now, a massive power base of precisely five guys. And then to add a little additional flavour, he decided that he'd humiliate one of them. He was not as grateful towards Pembroke as he really should have been. Pembroke had been a continual moderate, acting as the peacemaker between Edward and Lancaster, and I guess Edward just got irritated at the guy's constant interference and felt Pembroke should have been more holy and unquestioningly on his side. Plus, the dispensers weren't keen on the idea of having an elder statesman around and a rival to their power. And so, as reward for his long service, Pembroke was arrested and forced to swear that he'd follow his king in all things in the future. And from that point forward, he was basically a spent political force. One more point before we go on. Edward was now officially loaded. The problems with money that he'd had at the start of his reign were long behind him. And this wasn't just a matter of the Lancaster windfall. The constant taxes and wool revenues had refilled the coffers. Partly because of the close attention Edward paid to raising royal revenues, in fact, the job of the exchequer, he told them, was to make him rich, and they did a good job. Now that he'd visited revenge on one pain in the north, Edward was set to get rid of another one, the Scots. The army that went north into Scotland in July 1322 was in fact bigger than the one that met disaster at Bannockburn. There were 2,000 hobbilars, 20,000 infantry, 1,250 feudal heavy cavalry. Pennants fluttering and horns blowing, Edward's mighty army of conquest marched into the north to finally lay the ghost of his previous failures. Off they went into Lothian to see what they could find. What they found was precisely zip. Everything was gone. The land was empty. Bruce had ordered everyone to leave their towns and villages, taking any food and livestock with them. The sum total of their fines was in fact one lame bull. Wittily, the Earl of Surrey remarked, In truth, I'm quite sure this is the dearest beef that I've ever seen up to now. I'm sure the king was duly grateful to him for lightening the mood. They needed the odd quip, because around him the army was dying. Edward had made almost no provision for food. The few ships that found him had nowhere near enough. The campaign was an unmitigated disaster, and the army had to flee south. 
Behind them once again the Scots came out of their hiding places and James Douglas and his army attacked them as they went. As they went over the border, the Scots again raided into Northumberland and a flood of English refugees followed Edward's army. The truth is that the whole campaign was poorly planned and that the world had changed and Edward failed to recognise that. In the past, the English had a series of castles and strong points about which to structure their campaigns and now they had none of those. In addition, they had an enemy with a plan. A victorious campaign into Scotland needed careful planning and a much smaller, more mobile army. Hey, but at least Edward was giving it a go. Edward stayed in the north, since he seemed to think that that would deter the Scots from attacking. Sadly, it didn't. James Douglas came pouring over the border and overwhelmed Edward's force at a place called Blackhow Hill. Edward had to run for his life, closely followed by the younger dispenser and unfortunately it left Isabella isolated behind enemy lines and in a pretty desperate situation. Edward can't be accused of forgetting her. He tried to send men to rescue her, but in the end Isabella had to run for it, probably by sea, and in the process two of her ladies-in-waiting died. Interestingly, while it was happening, Isabella refused to accept the help of Dispenser's men. The relationship between Despenser and Isabella is going to be important. So far, Isabella and Edward have been pretty tight. All the evidence seems to point to a loving relationship. They're together much of the time. They spend time in bed rather than meeting the King of France, that sort of thing. But it's not going to be that way for much longer and her relationship with Despenser will be one of the reasons why she goes off message as it were. Also, I have to say that if I was cut off by a bunch of marauding Scots, I'd have accepted help from pretty much anyone. Isabella clearly had an exalted view of her own importance by haughtily refusing any assistance from Dispenser. Or alternatively, she must really, really dislike him. Everyone seems to agree, though, that Isabella was getting mighty tired of having to pick up her skirts and run for her life from the Scots just doesn't help the queenly dignity thing. She'd already had to do it in 1312, after the Battle of Merton in 1319, and now again, enough already. Edward had been well and truly walloped by the Scots, and it was time to fess up and face the music. Andrew Harkley, the victor of Boroughbridge, the newly created Earl of Carlisle, knew this very well, and actually went as far as agreeing a peace treaty with Robert Bruce. Fortunately, he'd forgotten one eensy-teensy thing, to tell the king that this is what he was doing. Now, this really didn't go down well with Edward, so rendering abjectly to the Scots was his job. Harclay was taken by surprise and arrested at Carlisle, tried and convicted for treason. When I say convicted, by the way, what I mean is that he was told he was obviously a traitor and who needs to bother with any kind of trial since you're clearly a baton in the Edwardian manner. Guess what? He was hung, drawn and quartered, and various parts of his anatomy distributed to join the growing pile of human debris hanging around the entrance of English towns. Whatever. Having re-established whose job it was to cravenly grovel in front of the Scots, Edward then went on to cravenly grovel in front of the Scots. Well, I exaggerate for effect. 
but in 1323 certainly a truce was agreed for 13 years. There was as yet no recognition of Bruce as a king, but there was of course an implicit recognition that the English had been given a thorough spanking. So everyone, this seems like a handy place to stop. Next week we have the joy and delight of a supplementary episode from Hannah Kilpatrick. Hannah really knows what she's talking about and has put together an episode on that most medieval of habits, the martyrdom and cult that sprung up around Thomas of Lancaster after his death. It's a real treat. The week after that, we'll look at an exercise in tyranny and how the shape of a pear begins to appear in Edward's life. And finally, I have some thanks to give to donators Laurie, David and Wynne. Thank you for your generosity. My thanks also to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week.